You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Tom Levinson, who is a professor at MIT and also the author of a number of books in, I guess we'd call the field of history of science, but also history of economics, at least with this latest book, including Hunt, Vervolken, Newton and the Counterfeiters, Einstein in Berlin, this one here called Measure for Measure, Musical History of Science, one called Ice Time, and the latest book called Money for Nothing, The Scientists, Fraudsters, and Corrupt Politicians Who Reinvented Money, Panicked a Nation, and made the world rich, which is basically the story of the South Sea bubble. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm a financial historian, and I was in a history department. And when I was trying to understand what was happening in 18th century, (laughs) I realized I needed to understand a bit more about finance. And so I went over to the business school to learn a bit about things like securitization. And I think you, at the end of the book, talk about the South Sea experience as sort of the beginnings of what we might call securitization. But the book begins with a discussion of Newton, right? And how, you know, the world was being measured and quantified and how this way of thinking may have spilled over into the world of economics and finance. And I find it interesting because today we have all sorts of folks who are trying to draw parallels between the kind of natural world and the social world, right? And also lots of people who are insisting on the differences. And I think this book explores both of those. So I guess my question is, having done all this work on Einstein and Newton, I mean, was Newton sort of the entryway into this discussion about 18th century financial history? Well, for me, certainly. This book was really born out of my earlier book on Newton that you mentioned, and actually was born not in the Newton and the Counterfeiter book, which was in some ways the prequel to the direct prequel to Money for Nothing, but in that book you held up briefly Measure for Measure, where I was trying to understand different ways science progresses. And one of the ways it does is just through developing instruments that allow you to see things or detect or measure things that you couldn't do beforehand. And it's amazing how much of scientific progress is not the work of genius, it's the work of really skilled engineers and craftspeople who make a better microscope or figure out how to build a computer that can handle a computer model that is sophisticated enough to do what you want all the, and, and everything in between. And in the course of doing that book, if it's a history of science told through instruments from the Greeks to the present, somewhere along the way, you're going to cross paths with Newton, which I did. And while I was writing that section, really while I was researching that section, I came across a mention in a kind of weird biography of Newton that tried to subject him to Freudian psychoanalysis. And there's lots in the biography that I found implausible, but there was this wonderful quote from a letter that this guy in Newgate Jail, this about condemned man about to be executed, begging Newton for help. And that made me curious. It was outside the scope of that particular project, but you know, what possible combination of circumstances, I wondered, could have put that condemned financial criminal, he was a counterfeiter, and the greatest scientific mind of his day in contact. It just seemed implausible. It would be like last year's Nobel Prize winner in physics having a pen pal relationship with somebody in Supermax. It's, you know, it could happen, but it's unlikely, right? So that stuck in my, in the back of my brain for a long time. And I learned more about Newton. And then I wrote another book about him. And I discovered that, of course, Newton is a rich and complicated figure. And in those days, people were not confined to single silos in their lives work or the kinds of jobs they could get, all that kind of stuff. And so Newton had this long and very varied career. And in the process of really studying Newton's role as a relatively important government monetary official when in his role as, you know, helping to run and then actually commanding the Royal Mint, I ran across some documents that suggested he'd gotten involved in this thing called the South Sea Bubble. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And so, you know, that's what led me to the bubble. 
that path, tracing Newton from his cloistered time in Cambridge, studying how apples fall and moons travel around the earth, to suddenly losing his shirt in the first great stock market fraud. Yeah, in my course on behavioral finance, I have a long discussion on bubbles. And I joke that Newton got caught up in this because he's the guy who discovered momentum. <laughs> and so that's why he got in. But, you know, he forgot that he's also the inventor of gravity. And that's why he failed to get out. But, you know, he did get in and out, right, first. And then against his better judgment, I guess he w- went back in. But what I found interesting is that Newton had written this tract, which I guess you're referring to, which made him look like a Keynesian, right? I mean, he has this whole discussion about the supply of money. And it seemed like he understood better than the politicians and better than the other folks, the importance of exchange rates. And, you know, he understood why the silver was fleeing the country and so forth. That's kind of remarkable that, you know, someone who's from outside of this domain can come in and size it up very quickly and also become this incredibly effective administrator at the same time. You're right. I agree with you entirely. But I think there's two different things going on. There's Newton, the administrator, and Newton, the very early modern financial thinker. And I mean, one thing to remember, of course, is that Newton's reputation is not exaggerated. He was a really, 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 really smart guy. And the other thing to remember is that you talk about Newton going out of his domain. It's a lot less clear what his domain was then compared to the way we understand jobs and specialization and expertise now. Banking in any remotely recognizably modern sense was less than half a century and possibly less than a quarter of a century old when Newton takes over the Mint in 1696. And the sort of development of the mathematics of risk, of thinking of trying to predict change over time, using mathematics to make predictions about the future, all that kind of stuff. There's a way to see it as developing since the beginnings of significant European commerce in the 12th or 13th century, you know, European international commerce. But an awful lot of that mathematics and the sort of mathematical sensibility, the idea that you can apply that kind of thinking to problems outside of what would be considered purely mathematical problems. You know, coming up with better proofs for this or that conjecture, what have you, but you're actually working with it in terms of a practical problem. That's quite recent. That's really building across the 17th century and accelerating in the second half of the 17th century, so 1650s onwards. And so Newton started working at a really high level when he was still very young, but in mid-1660s, say, developing mathematical insights, beginning to work out the calculus, applying calculus to physics and so forth and so on. And in his life as just a Cambridge University professor, doing things like helping the bursar of his college, Trinity College, figure out the best way to think about rents on the extensive lands that made being a professor at Trinity a rather comfortable proposition, that kind of thing. So he's already applying his mathematical skill to really practical problems of getting and spending late 1660s, 1670s, this is not so far out of his domain. This is what people did in, the, in those days. If you figured something out and you saw how it could be used somewhere else, you just did it. You didn't ask for permission from the grand vizier of financial experts or whoever it might be. You just did the work. And I think it's important not to say, well, this is all Isaac Newton. Newton is a great example of this happening, but it was happening all over the learned world, the learned world in England, the learned world in Canada. Well, like this guy, Edmund Halley. Well, Halley, absolutely. And you have people, Leibniz was a very, you know, in Germany, was a very practically minded person. He got his first notice at the Royal Society in London for inventing a really advanced calculating machine. I mean, people who you think of now who would sort of be siloed as abstract or theoretical physicists or what have you, really did anything they could turn their hands to. And clearly, questions of the finance of national ambition was something that lots and lots of people were thinking about and concerned with in England and elsewhere, particularly as you start getting to the point where France and at least the more powerful German states and England and Spain are all trying to compete with each other on a scale that was really beginning to be significantly, noticeably larger than ever before. The wars of the end of the 17th century that extended all the way through the you know, so-called long 18th century which begins in 1689 and ends in 1815, if you want to take the beginning and end of the global continuous war between France and England as the measure of it, 
that was really expensive. Projecting power around the world, as people were trying to do for the first time, ships were finally really going across the Atlantic and around to the Pacific in ways that, that was new. It's really expensive to build and run an empire. And it's really expensive to send tens of thousands of men to fight in distant locations. And so suddenly it became really important to figure out how to make your country rich. And everybody who was anybody, everybody who was an intellectually curious, capable person would at least give a little bit of attention to that. And they did. You mentioned this problem of silver leaving England because of basically failed understanding of the possibilities of arbitrage on the part of the English government. Well, when they were trying to figure that out, they, uh, the person, the secretary of state who was in charge of trying to work out a solution for the coinage, sent out a request for help to a wide range of people. Newton was one of them, but so was Sir Christopher Wren, an architect. And so was Francis Child, the founder of Child's Bank and an early and very important financier. And so was John Locke, a philosopher. Basically, they were trying to grab anybody they could who was smart to help them think this through. And that that's actually, in my view, not at all a stupid way to go about things. But, you know, what's remarkable to me about the 18th century in London in particular is the fervent. I mean, I can't imagine that people can read about this and not want to parachute down into this world. I mean, you know, you've got Defoe and you've got Swift and you've got Newton and you've got all these super interesting people. The Royal Society, right, was formed and the Royal Society was basically just all the smart people <laughs> who were getting together and discussing all of these new discoveries. And some of them were really weird and banal topics, I think you referenced. And they would kind of mix the sublime and the profound and the banal. <laughs> and, you know, they just seemed to be people with this restless curiosity trying to figure things out for the first time. It was, yeah, I mean, you're a historian as well. And you find yourself sometimes in periods where it's just, it's so much fun to be there. You research it and you continue, I, or I really got caught in this sort of second half of the 17th century because it's just, as you say, a bonkers, exciting time. Immersion in some historical periods also does remind you why it's really nice to be living in a century where there's functional sewers and... No plague. Yeah, no plague, exactly. So there are definitely advantages. You get perspective on your own time. But still, you know, the, it was culturally exciting. You had great music, you know, you had literature, you had all this good stuff going on. And as you say, this extraordinary ferment, the sense that you were really in the midst of where people were figuring out in fundamental ways, things that had puzzled or just completely confused people forever, not for generations, really forever. Again, I am more a lumper than a splitter. I like to see sort of continuous... I see events as a continuous flow rather than this or like sudden momentary revolutionary breakthrough. But if ever there was a profoundly changing, rapidly changing sort of, you can experience it in yourself in your own lifetime kind of thing. The late 17th century was just remarkable. And I think Daniel Defoe is a good sort of touchstone for that because, you know, Defoe is a, was not from a wealthy or successful family. He really made his fortune from his pen. He was certainly a terrible businessman. He lost his fortune more than once trying to do the kinds of things that he admired and pursued. But he was sitting there documenting the fact that you have this sort of, in some senses, one of the first real journalists, again, in a modern sense, doing one of his very first works called SAM Projects, where he's talking about all the different ways people are trying to figure out new things to do that are useful in the world and that will make those who figure them out rich, economically successful. And he's really enthusiastic about it. And that's an enthusiasm I think he retains, which makes him a really interesting voice on the South Sea bubble when it comes around 30 years further into his career. Because initially, he's really, he thinks it's a great idea, at least a potentially very important and when an approach to national finance and thinking about the nature of wealth and the making of wealth on a national scale, he thinks it's a really important and useful new development. And he does eventually become to have some second thoughts about it. But I actually think he was right both times. It was a fascinating and important idea. And it was rapidly something that showed, you know, the real risks and problems and potential for disaster in the reckless or just the first trial of something that had not in fact been done before. Well, I think for casual students of this time period, 
they see this big discontinuity happening right in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution. And before that, you had this divine monarch and he had terrible time trying to borrow money and you had to stop at the exchequer and so forth. And then after 1688, right, Parliament ultimately guaranteed all debts and everything was wonderful. And now England could surpass France with its fantastic system of credit. But, you know, the period that you're describing, the South Sea bubble, I mean, it was 1720. So, you know, we're talking 32 years later. So this business of the English government sort of solidifying its credit, this was a 30 year plus period where they kind of had to figure this out. And it really hadn't dawned on me how difficult that was. Things didn't just change overnight with William and Mary and the establishment of the Bank of England. And even, I mean, for a big chunk of this period, the cost of borrowing to the English government was still higher than the cost of borrowing for lots of private individuals. That's right. In many ways throughout this period, it was riskier to lend to the government than it was to lend to a private individual from whom you could get collateral or you you knew where they lived, as it were. You could impose legal constraint on them in ways that is much more difficult to do if you're trying to jump up and down and get parliament or the monarch to pay their bills. There is this phrase that's sometimes used, and I think again, appropriately, the financial revolution, which I argue is in some ways an offshoot of the intellectual transformation that we call the scientific revolution. And it sort of overlaps with the conventional periodization. If you think of the so-called 17th century scientific revolution from the 1640s or 50s to the end of the century, the financial revolution really you can start thinking about from the 1680s, and it goes until about 1750 or so. It takes that long There's the 30-some years to get to the bubble, and then there's close to 30 years, essentially, to work out all that you need to do to to understand what went wrong in the bubble and come up with institutions and financial tools that can address and overcome those obstacles while still getting the benefit of having a stable, reliable system of creating and then managing government debt. Creation of the modern bond market is, in effect, and that takes a while, too. The financial revolution doesn't end with the disaster of the South Sea bubble. That's one of the key milestones in it. That's a watershed event, but there's still a lot to be done. And in retrospect, I think it shouldn't be surprising that they didn't figure it out all at once. And one of the reasons you know it shouldn't be surprising is we still have bubbles. And we still have bubbles that take very much the same shape as the South Sea bubble did, the same stages, the same mechanisms that lead to the creation of a dangerous and significant market overshoot and collapse. And as I say in the book, Newton and his contemporaries can be forgiven for their experience of the bubble because it was the first time. They build all these new things, they try all these new tricks, and it gets out of hand. We had tulip bubbles. I mean, the tulip bubble is, when I usually discuss my history of bubbles, I start with the tulips and then fast forward to the uh, South Sea company. The the tulip bubble, I think, you, of course, the tulip bubble was a century earlier. It was a significant event. It was an event that was, you know, People at the time of, in fact, the South Sea bubble was one of multiple bubbles that were happening simultaneously in Europe. So this sort of this year of bubbles in 1720 and people in 1720 had historical memory of the earlier one. But if you look at it from, again, the point of view of you much more than me, a financial historian, there's a difference between a speculative commodity bubble and a leverage driven financial bubble. Some of the mechanisms are different. And certainly some of the arguments for why the South Sea investment was still... I mean, people were making these arguments really up to within days of the crash. And they were plausible. They weren't right. And if you looked at them more closely, and if you looked at them quantitatively, and if you used some sort of really rigorous mental discipline, there were people in 1720 who figured this out and either didn't get sucked into the bubble or got out of the bubble before they became the bigger fool. But... You know, when we have something like the 2009 collapse, there was a lot of evidence. There was a lot of reason to believe that was going to happen. There was adequate warning. And one of the criticisms I have of the people in power at that time is they really didn't do any of the things that they could have done to try and deflate the bubble before it became a catastrophic, hugely costly in human terms as well as financial terms kind of destruction. And 
Yes, the mathematics was much of securitized real estate and its derivatives, much more complicated than the mathematics of the South Sea bubble instruments. And the sort of ingenuity and the almost elaborate kind of Rube Goldberg invention of some of the things that we saw in the kind of securitized debt obligation. Those instruments were definitely much more complex than anything that John Blunt and his colleagues were able to come up with in 1720. But the basics, you know, the basic dynamic of the bubble was identical. I mean, you can map the phases and they line up perfectly. Newton and Halley and King George and all those folks hadn't seen it before. But we have. What's our excuse? Right. I agree with you. I think the parallels that you draw between the 2008 disaster and the 1720 disaster are there. I think perhaps the modern equivalent of the commodity tulip bubble is the crypto bubble that we just went through. But what they all seem to have in common is that there's, you know, there's something new. And because it's new, people think that some new form of valuation should apply. But it seems like when you talk about the scientific rigor and you talk about Halley and you talk about this other guy who also worked in the field of demographics and predicting life expectancy. Oh, Thomas Petty? Yeah, Thomas Petty. William Petty. There's was William Petty. and Yeah, William Petty. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Thomas Piketty, and that's wrong. Yeah. And there's a German guy. And it seems like their successors were not the blunts of the world, but this guy, Archibald Hutchison, right? You know, and that guy is a remarkable figure. He's like the Graham and Dodd, Warren Buffett, John Paulson of his day, right? Who's, you know, focusing on the fundamentals and trying to work out the math. And the folks that were participating in the bubble, they left, you know, rigor behind early on. (laughs) And that seems to be not part of the story of the scientific method, but rather animal spirits taken over. Yeah. I mean, I think Hutchinson's a really interesting character because on the one hand, he is somebody, member of the Royal Society himself, really uses calculation, again, from our point of view, very simple mathematical or quantitative methods to try and understand whether or not South Sea securities were properly priced. And he's very much, I think, the heir of the first and second generation of scientific revolutionaries, the people who helped found the Royal Society in the 1660s, people like Newton and Halley and others who came along a bit later and really applied in the famous line from another historian of science, subjected matter to number, abstracting from the details of ordinary events to come up with simple, simplifying, abstract descriptions of those events that could then be operated on with mathematics. In some senses, that's the essence of scientific revolution. When Newton comes along applying his laws of motion and universal law of gravitation to the world, he applies it to everything. He works out the tides. He figures out how cannonballs fly. He talks about the orbits of the other planets, of the behavior of the moon, all these kinds of things of comets, all these very different phenomena. You know, a comet crashing through the sky is very, very different from an apple falling from a tree, except not when you abstract it and just take them both as they are as problems of motion under gravitation. Hutchinson comes along another generation later, Newton's still alive, but he's an old man now, and says, what happens if you try and take away all the sort of distracting bits of reality? The uh, South Sea Bubble is a banking company. The South Sea Bubble is a trading company. The South Sea Bubble is a slaving company. It does all these different things. And so its shares are valued based on the excitement of all those businesses. No, those businesses can be understood as deployments of capital against which returns are anticipated. Let's think that through rigorously and see how much all these different things might be worth. Very much the same mental operation as saying a cannonball and an apple are essentially just two different facets of the same phenomenon, even though they don't look very similar. And this is really where I think the connection between the scientific revolution and the financial revolution is obvious. It leaps out at you. The thing you do with mathematics is you scrub away all the confusing particularity of reality, you know, the fine-grained nature of reality. I'm sitting in a room. I've got a window to one side. There's trees outside my window. There's, you know, in the distance, there's some water. There's all this different stuff going on, but we're all sitting on this ball that's going around the sun in a completely mathematically analyzable and understandable way. And the fact that there's a tree and some shrubs there doesn't change that underlying 
really simple mathematical model of what I'm doing right now, what you're doing right now. We're both traveling around this ball at some rapid 25,000 miles per day or whatever, wherever we are on the circumference of the earth, all that kind of stuff. Those realities are happening even as we sit here in our circumstances, experiencing all this lovely, rich detail of everyday life. And Hutchison did that for basically trying to understand a trading company and a banking company, in some ways, to a, a group of guys trying to do things. He said, no, no, strip away the guys, strip away. It doesn't matter what they had for lunch. It doesn't matter what they're going to do tonight. All that matters is there are these quantifiable, numerically expressible things that they are involved in. Let's look at those numbers, subject them to an attempt to understand how those numbers evolve over time and decide based on easily expressible principles, the present value of money, how much are you willing to pay for a return in the future? All those kinds of things that are elementary finance you teach in the first year of an economics program or a business school program. This is where that started, trying to figure out what something is worth in a rigorous way so that you can, again, same thing. You want to compare the behavior of a cannonball, an apple, a moon, and what have you. You want to compare, should I invest in an acre of land? Should I buy this security? Should I buy a government bond? Should I stick the money in a hole and wait for economic conditions to be better? I mean, you know, these are decisions that people make all the time. Those different activities seem very different. But if you can reduce them to a present value calculation, which is essentially what Hutchison did, you can make them all directly comparable. And that's a scientifically revolutionary idea. Yeah, I mean, we have histories of actuarial science, right, where people would look at life expectancies and so forth and probabilities. And we have histories of accounting, right, with Luca Pacioli and all that. I've never seen a history of NPV, right? <laughs> and if there were a history of fundamental analysis, let's call it, this guy Hutchison would have to play a big role, right? He does. And here I'm going to, you know, even though we're talking about my book, let me give a plug for a colleague's book, Will Derringer, William Derringer, who is a colleague in the program in Science, Technology, and Society at MIT. He's a financial historian. And his recent book, Calculating Values, both goes into Hutchinson in more detail than I do, but really is a look at both the sort of development of the science of understanding value over time, but also the way it became powerful political rhetoric how expressing things mathematically gained this kind of authority. Which is really interesting, again, when you flash forward to the 20th and 21st century, because one of the things I think you see in, in the 2008 crash, 2007-8, is there was a rhetoric of mathematics. You got these guys from MIT and from Caltech and so forth going to Wall Street and building these very elaborate models of how the market was behaving and using those models to build securitized debt obligation CDOs and all that sort of and synthetic CDOs and all these wonderful varieties of different ways to slice, create leverage on and then slice up tranches of real world economic activity. And one of the reasons I think, and again, there's a direct parallel back to the South Sea bubble. There is an argument, we're doing this new thing. We, you know, we built it on, the, on mathematics that are too complicated for you to understand. But trust us, mathematics is this sure and certain science. You can have truth in mathematics. You know, as Einstein family said, mathematics can be true. The best that physics can be um, demonstrated. And there's a difference. And so, you know, if the mathematics are work out, then, of course, this is a safe and sound and perfectly acceptable kind of way to spend your money until, of course, it isn't. So there's a rhetoric in the use of mathematical argument that shouldn't be ignored. It was present in the 1720s bubble and in that era. And it was very much present recently. And you saw some of the same, again, the same argument, the blockchain is, you don't understand what the blockchain is and you don't need to understand it. You just need to know that it is this wonderful, abstract mathematical machine that can't be cheated and it's always public and all this, that, and the other thing. And therefore everything else we might do, as long as it's got a blockchain somewhere in the system, Pay no attention to that stuff. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. And yes, there is, it seems to be a consistent way to produce woe for lots and lots of unwary investors. Well, I mean, especially in the early days of these new movements, right? It's easy for the promoters to overwhelm people with technical detail until their eyes glaze over, you know, and then they feel stupid for asking simple questions. I just want to jump in on that. One of the interesting things for me and something you can't answer definitively but I don't think the people who created the mechanism for the South Sea bubble or the analogous bubble going on in France, John Law's Mississippi bubble, and these kind of things, 
I don't think they set out to defraud the public or the nations. I think they believed in it. And I think that's true for at least some of the blockchain people as well, the crypto people as well. It's like, you know, there's so many ways to be fooled in nature, as the saying in science goes, and the easiest person to fool is yourself. And I also think that none of these ideas were all stupid, right? Quite the contrary. Sometimes they had, you know, enormously powerful things, which is what happened for Britain in the aftermath of the bubble. So it's not that surprising that clever people who are committed to the idea, who've discovered some new trick or way of thinking, would believe in it. The hard thing is sort of, you know, and obviously I think in every case there are some outright fraudsters, right? They're the remoras that sort of grip on to the shark of this larger event. And sometimes people who start out sincere realizes it's going to hell and either enthusiastically or reluctantly become fraudsters themselves because it's the only way they can keep dancing on the edge of disaster. But it's one of the things that's striking is a lot of the time things that turn out to be catastrophic don't start out that way, at least in the minds of the people pushing them. And I suspect that I'm sure that's true in the bubble, the 1720s house bubble. I would, my bias is to expect that's true of crypto. But I think in crypto, the ease and speed with which frauds and thefts and deception has spread through that world suggests that the proportion of true believers to eager takers of advantage, the ratio may not be uh, nearly as pleasant as it was even back in that first bubble. Well, let's talk about that because with all of these bubbles, there's usually some new idea which is going to add value. And Clearly, I mean, the joint stock company was an innovation, very powerful innovation. And you could argue that after the collapse of the South Sea bubble, the formation of joint stock companies was, there was too few of them, I would probably argue after the collapse. But, you know, the business models also, right? The business model of the East India Company, that was solid, right? I mean, there was a lot of money to be made in the trade with the East. The Bank of England, this is a solid business model, converting illiquid fixed income securities into liquid media of exchange. And so when we look at the South Sea company, I mean, at the core of their business, it was essentially taking this illiquid government securities. And, you know, there were lots and lots and lots of these different securities and they all had different maturities. They all had different yields. They all had different levels of security. Some were backed by assigned revenue streams and some weren't. And some had to do with life expectancies and lotteries and all this kind of stuff. And they simplified it and created liquidity. And so, you know, that core purpose was one that added value. It was important, at least for that time period. I mean, later on, the government realized, well, they could just do it themselves. (laughs) They didn't need these folks, but they, they kind of moved the needle forward on that, right? They did. And that's sort of the point of the bubble, is that at the core of the bubble was a really good idea that actually served the government's purposes. In fact, served the government's purposes so well that one of the reasons you don't get joint stock companies going forward, and in particular, you don't allow private companies to have access to the bond market, to the debt market, in the same way that the government has, is because the government wants to make sure it essentially has a monopoly in that form of finance so that it can continue executing its purposes. And you don't really see a private bond market emerging, at least in Britain, until um, the second quarter of the the 19th century, so 100 years later. But the good idea at the heart of the bubble is an idea that had been tried successfully in pilot programs by the South Sea Company starting a decade before and by others, and clearly worked, right? And there were some specific ways in which the final big subsume all the national debt into this new idea of a single tradable liquid, basically a bond. It's a little confusing because the South Sea Company sold South Sea stock, which was functionally the bond, but they also sold bonds in the company itself, right? So you have these, which were in fact bonds, but they were bonds in the company, not in the government. And it just, the nomenclature gets a little confusing if you aren't careful. But leaving that aside, the way the company was allowed to issue shares and then price them on the open market was what set the possibility for a runaway bubble in motion. But the underlying idea of trading securities with a guaranteed rate of interest that could be traded on the still young but increasingly liquid and functional London stock market 
That was a solid idea. It had been tried again, as I say, on substantial, but of course, much smaller scales, a couple of times, at least in the previous decade. And um, it demonstrated there was clearly a benefit for investors who had access to capital again, instead of just the income, which was in the previous illiquid version, all you got was your annual return. You didn't have access to the underlying funds. Government got a lower and more stable interest rate, and they had an easy way, a regular way to go and raise money because you could issue more debt under the same terms instead of having to issue another one of these sort of special ad hoc devices, a life annuity, a li an annuity on three lives, a tally stick, a pension of this, that. I mean, as you were saying, the range of different ways, lottery, I mean, even I mean, this is one of my favorite things from the late 17th and early 20th, 18th century are these lottery tickets where you'd buy a ticket for 10 pounds, which is a lot of money back then or more, and you would be entered to win a cash prize. And after the drawing, those tickets converted into bonds at some interest rate that you could just hold on to and cumbersomely trade. There was a secondary market in some of those things. And in some cases, those lottery tickets also were treated by the government as actually currency. You could pay your taxes in a 10 pound lottery ticket kind of thing. So, you, you know, they were trying everything to figure out how to finance government activities, especially war, that they couldn't fund out of present revenue. And, you know, bring in the future to pay for the present. And hopefully the present is successful enough to create an economy large enough to cover the debts that are accumulating going down the road. As you were saying earlier in this conversation, there were all these different expedients. And eventually they hit on the one that, yes, caused the catastrophe of the 1720 bubbles, but proved in a somewhat different reformed form version to be quite successful in allowing Britain ahead of every other nation in Europe to have access to capital in ways that could fund well, we saw it, the British Empire. Well, you, you, this is also the time period where you see the emergence of all these institutions, right? So like Exchange Alley, right? And the coffee houses and, and this thing called the course of the exchange, which is sort of a kind of a Wall Street Journal, right? <laughs> day, right? A Reuters or a, publishing the prices of all of these instruments. In some ways, it's the course of the exchange is the 1690s forward version of the Bloomberg terminal. That's what you look at to see what the, you know, because one of the problems in the early stock market is it's not a single market. It's a bunch of guys hanging out at Garraway's Coffee House and at Jonathan's and at the other ones. I'm blanking on some of the other names, but they were in these rooms and taverns and coffee houses and sometimes just out on the street in this little corner of London called Exchange Alley, Change Alley. And um, so you could have, in a crowded room, you could have a different price quoted for Bank of America stock or East India stock or South Sea Company stock, whatever it may be, or a government security from one end of the room to the other noticeably different. So how do you decide as an investor, you're a country gentleman with an extra 500 pounds to spare that year, and you want to come to London and you want to secure a return? How do you do that? And the answer is it's really hard without being cheated. There are lots of ways. And this opacity of information is one of the, you know, and still you look at the scams done with thinly traded stocks or over-the-counter stocks or whatever it may be, or placements of private equity. You, know, you put your money in with a Bernie Madoff, who's got his, you know, it's the fact that you cannot see inside the machine that makes it so vulnerable to deceit, to fraud, or just subpar returns. It's why should you buy a stock at a pound and a quarter a share when somebody at the other end of the room with no dishonesty involved is buying it for a pound and six months. You just lost that much return. And it's going to last, as we know, thanks to compound interest, that has a devastating role over the lifetime of the investment. And so it's, again, a similar thing to what you're doing in the scientifically inspired way of thinking about number. One of the things the scientific revolution said is you have to measure and you have to measure precisely, and you have to measure in a way that's replicable so that you have the correct data on which then to perform your calculations. Newton's first attempt to work out the law of gravitation foundered on the fact that the early measurements in the 1660s on which he was relying on were just not accurate enough. So he couldn't get the right numbers because he was working with imprecise measurements for the motion of a pendulum in the gravitational field at different points on the Earth. I mean, it was, it was, particular technical problem, but it was, it showed that in science, if you don't get it right, if you don't get the observation, the empirical, the first step in quantifying anything is you go out and you measure something and says, okay, this is 12 inches long, which means it's just as long as that thing over there that is, that I've also measured is 12 inches long. 
if in fact you measure one thing at 12 inches long and you measure something else and you call it 12 inches long, but actually if you go back and do it right, it's 13 inches, you've got a problem, right? The comparison doesn't work very well. And similarly, they have this problem on Exchange Alley. And it's a problem we've had for up until very recently. Think about, you know, in the early days of day trading, when people were slipping bids in an eighth between the buy and ask and making, you know, just doing that arbitrage over and over again to make these, you know, pennies on each share exchange. That's because the measurement wasn't precise enough. And if you were quick and had a quick machine and you were, you know, all that, you could just slice off your five cents per share over and over again and make some money. So the measurement issues, the quantification issues that were present in the beginnings of the stock market remained with us and still to a certain extent do. I keep reading about things like trying to make sure that your bid is not delayed by the speed of light time travel. So people put up server farms in New Jersey to be close enough to New York so that your bid goes in before something coming from Chicago. I mean, these are tiny fractions of a second, but it can make a difference, right? So think about that then in the actual just physical landscape of Exchange Alley, which is a quarter mile of street with 20 or 30 rooms in it in which different people are buying and selling the same stuff. The course of the exchange was this newspaper, which just published twice a week, and it sent out runners at the end of every day to ask what the last price, the most commonly traded stocks, the currencies, and the government securities, asked what they'd sold at. And so you know, on Tuesdays and Fridays, you had a sense of what the prices had been for the previous week as a consistent numerical argument that you could then base your investment decisions on. Obviously, Tuesday and Friday, end of the day, is not the kind of information flow we're used to. But in that context, it was revolutionary. It was the, again, the quantification and the abstraction of particular human experience. One guy making a deal with another guy or a woman, there's lots of women trading in the stock market at this period, in the upstairs room at Garraway's, the degree of the better or worse deal that they could get was constrained by the information in the course of the exchange. And that was a really important step in the creation of a modern stock market, just having some idea of price certainty. Now, one of the things that was common, both with England and France, of course, because the Mississippi bubbles happening around the same time, is that the participants they weren't limited to what we might think of as the, you know, the, the bourgeoisie, right? I mean, these, we had all the aristocrats, all the folks in House of Lords, they were all involved in this. And you talk about this guy, Portland, <laughs> who lost his shirt. And was it surprising to you to see how pretty much everyone was involved? The crown prince was involved. <laughs> he was like the, I guess the Jared Kushner of his day, right? He had his hand in, in the bubble bag, so to speak. As everybody. Yeah, it was. And of course, more those at the top than at other levels. One of the things that happens with the development of the stock exchange and this kind of modern finance is you do get some democratization of high finance. The lotteries themselves were interesting because, you know, 10 pounds was, let me see, 15, that's about on the order of eight to 10 weeks of wages for a skilled craftsman in London. But if you get a group of friends together, 10 pounds is something that skilled craftsmen could buy and did. And all of a sudden, that little group of people became creditors to the parliament, the nation. England was borrowing money from them and paying them a return on it. And you go up the scale a bit to the landed gentry, to the middle and upper middle classes of people engaged in mercantile activities or manufacturing, the classes that were in some senses, disdained by aristocrats. And then, of course, all the gentry and above into the high aristocracy. One thing about being a duke is it's, you're rich if you're a duke, but it's expensive being a duke also. And you are very much in the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough were, they built Blenheim Palace. They had all those lands. They were successful people. But the Duchess of Marlborough was a very successful, one of, the, one of the real winners in the South Sea bubble, got in early, got out and stayed out and was reckoned to be one of the great investors of her day. So it's not surprising to me that you would see the elites because the elites are always in the markets. The elites are always backing lucrative. They're often the, the path into attempts at economic activity for adventurous people of classes below them. And it's still true today. You mentioned Jared Kushner, but, you know, there's not a single elite top, what is it, Fortune 400 family that isn't looking for ways to invest their money and make more of a fortune. 
which I don't think it's changed very much in that regard. Well, I don't think we could end this discussion without talking about Horace Walpole. I mean, he, he was a really r- remarkable figure, right? How he was able to climb his way to such a position of power, right? I mean, he had all of the top positions and really defined the position of prime minister, although he denied it. And he was able to keep his hands clean, right, throughout this whole process, more or less. More or less, yeah. As clean as if there, there was a lot of smoke around him, not, many, not much proof of fire. He did get condemned by parliament once for alleged corruption. Not clear that he was any more corrupt than people who had the same positions that he held, but he was an expedient political target at one point. Yeah, Walpole is a fascinating figure. And one of the really surprising things to me in actually working on this book is there hasn't been a single recent comprehensive biography of him. The sources are all his papers directly. There's one sort of partly complete biography from 60 years ago. But this is one of the most important people in the history of British politics. He's a touchstone for a lot of the arguments in the U.S. One of the things in the colonies, Walpole was the wrong way to go. And Walpole's opposing pamphleteers are people who were cited extensively in the pre-revolutionary period as a reason to break with England. Walpole was sort of the symbol for all that's wrong about the way the British governed the colonies. So in some sense, you can say he's the, the father of one political system and the unfortunate uncle of the other one. And I mean, it's interesting because there's no real sense early in his life that he's going to be like this, that he's going to be this kind of significant figure. He's the third son of a country gentry gentleman, not high aristocracy, but definitely a member of a local elite. Think if in Jane Austen terms, think of the Darcy's powerful local family, but not not a titled aristocrat or anything like that. And, and he was probably, as you said, destined to be, as he later said, he was destined to be a clergyman because his two older brothers were going to, one was going to go into government, one was going to go into the Navy and all that. And then the two older brothers died, died quite young. And Walpole was first called to come and learn how to manage his father's estates. And then when his father died, took over his father's seat in parliament, went up to London, married a rich woman whom it seems he had more of a marriage of convenience with, at least after the first few years and really threw himself into politics and found there his calling. It wasn't like he set out to be a politician. This happened to him through a series of life events that can happen to any of us. But he he proved to be really adept at it. And again, relatively unusually for his class and his cohort in Parliament and his party, the Whigs, he was comfortable with quantitative argument. He was comfortable with finance. He was okay with numbers. And so he became one of the leading Whig politicians in the area of finance and was one of the people who helped really set up the kinds of approaches that became the South Sea bubble, though he was very lucky in that in an intra-party fight, he lost the factional battle in in the end of the 17-teens and so was out of power when the South Sea bubble legislation, South Sea legislation was passed didn't bear personal responsibility. And when the crash happened, was able to come in with the appearance of clean hands and try and set things right. So his career to me is a really wonderful example of the need to have to be both lucky and good, because Walpole certainly was both. And they set up something like a special prosecutor or something to sort through the mess and figure out like who is complicit. And I found this interesting, right? Because it was, we always think about the corruption of parliament. Certainly when you study American history, that was one of the things that the revolutionaries were super upset about, the empty boroughs and all that kind of stuff. But here, this was like a corruption inquiry. Obviously, it you could use leverage to get out of liability and so forth, and it became a bit of a witch hunt. But I found it interesting that they did actually have something that resembled a kind of corruption investigation. They didn't. They'd had that power for a long time. I mean, Walpole himself was impeached for corruption and confined very comfortably in the Tower of London for a a brief while. But yeah, it's interesting because clearly the inquiry and trials that followed in 1721 were largely political. In the form that they took, they were forced on Walpole by his opponents, including Archibald Hutchison, this sort of calculating wizard who figured out that the bubble was likely to crash long before others were willing to accept that. 
But once that the mechanism was in place, Walpole used it skillfully to ensure that the public had the sense that those who were responsible for the, you know, disruption and woe were getting punished and showing that the government was in charge and figuring out how to move forward and so on, gave him cover for some of the really quite ruthless moves he made to ensure that all the things that were good for government finance in the bubble were preserved and they were just going to drop from future attempts and pretend never happened, all the stuff that was crazy and bad. But it's interesting to me also, again, if you look at our own 21st century American circumstances, one of the things I think a lot of people just felt emotionally was there wasn't really a reckoning after the 2008 crash. No one's heads rolled, right? <laughs> no, but no one's heads rolled. And I actually think that was a serious, you know, there were arguments that were made that you can have different people can disagree on about the importance for the ongoing function of the markets of keeping the bankers on side and this, that, and the other thing. But I think the fact that it was rhetorically easy to say the bankers were bailed out and American homeowners weren't was a disastrous political framing of was in other ways a surprisingly successful, more successful than, say, Europe did, recovery from the economic consequences of that crash. Hardly perfect, lots of things we could talk about there, but certainly the U.S. did better than Britain and Germany and places like that, Greece, whatever. But we had no show trials, right? We had no show trials. We had, And, and there were people who, you know, the ratings agencies really failed in the 2000s, and AIG and some of the financial insurance companies really were reckless with their shareholders' money. And places like Lehman really did over leverage themselves and cause lots of collateral. There are lots of possible things that you could say were signs of at best negligence, failure to, to have the fiduciary responsibility that you should always exercise when you're handling large amounts of other people's money. Whereas in Britain in 1721, John Blunt got hauled up before parliament and had his entire fortune stripped away. Some of the politicians who were involved in the decision to go into the bubble were kicked out of parliament and had their fortunes tainted. Not all of them. Walpole protected those closest to him if he could. Uh, but there was at least a measure of accountability. And most importantly, it was very public in the accountability. And that gave cover for Walpole to make, I think, the most important single decision, which said, we're not going to undo these transactions. Everybody who sold their secure, reliable 8 9% per year illiquid government securities for South Sea stock that then crashed in value, you're stuck. You got the South Sea boat, you entered into the transaction freely. That's it. We're not undoing that. You now own that security, not the other security. All those trades stay the same. And that's really the move that saved the British government's finances. It created the bond market. All that South Sea stock just became this liquid tradable security that did in fact recover over time. Nobody made their 10 to 1 gains, but it became at least not a, I think the estimates varied between you got back to a third of your value to two thirds. So big haircut, but not zero. And that decision more than anything else was the critical one that helped transform Britain's finances into what would finally mature by the 1750s into this seemingly perpetual motion machine of allowing the British Parliament and the monarchy to access capital when it needed to for things like the Seven Years' War, which it won, the Revolutionary War, which it lost, and then most importantly, the Revolutionary France and Napoleonic Wars, which settled the matter of who was the leading country in Europe once and for all. Now, I have to ask you just one last question before I let you go, which is, you're at MIT, and we were talking about how MIT's, it's an unusual place, right, in terms of how it's segmented into different schools and departments. And, and so I, I couldn't figure out what your affiliation was. I mean, you're a historian of science. But I mean, tell me just a, qu a bit about how MIT thinks about humanities and social sciences and what makes it a little bit different from some of the other places. MIT is really interesting in that over time, it wasn't always this way, it's created a really something between a, a big R1 liberal arts university model and an elite four-year college model for humanities and social sciences. So we have 
most of the departments you'd expect in any liberal arts institution. We have a history department, an anthropology department, political science, linguistics, philosophy, economics, all that stuff, writing and literature, all that sort of stuff. And many of those departments do not have graduate programs. So that's more on the four-year college model. But really starting 30 to 40 years ago, MIT decided it was not enough just to sort of have a kind of department that was a little bit of a finishing school for engineers, that if they were going to do this at all, they had to build these departments with the same rigor and demand for nationally recognizable competence that they have for the Department of Physics or the Department of Mathematics or the Department of Electrical Engineering, whatever it may be. So they started expand, significantly expanding and building what had been lumped in one case into just the Department of the Humanities, building distinct, more discipline-focused departments, some really innovative interdisciplinary programs like our internationally leading science, technology, and society program, which brings together historians, anthropologists, sociologists, and science studies people, and things like my own program. The writing program is both a, a really first-class creative fiction and nonfiction program it has its own distinct science writing focus, which you would expect at MIT, which is where I live. And we are one of the few humanities programs that does ha have a graduate program. We have a master's program in science writing. And it started doing the same in some of the social sciences programs. Philosophy, which I guess you would consider humanities, is world leading. Linguistics is famous. Economics is one of the top two, three, five departments, depending on who's counting in the country. Political science has a very small undergraduate population and a large graduate population. So somewhere along the line, they decided that if MIT was going to do this at all, it had to do it in the MIT way. And we've become this fairly substantial, it's a pretty large faculty across the entire school. And we have dreams, at least, of being as excellent as it's possible to be. And I think sometimes we do a pretty darn good job of achieving those dreams. And do you think this helps with the interdisciplinary work? If they were to expand too much and, and some of these lumps became splits, would that make it more difficult to do the interdisciplinary work? I think interdisciplinary work is always a problem because it's an institutional problem because how do you hire, how do you tenure and so forth? Somebody who falls between two or three or four stools, you have to have a top down institutional commitment. The president, the provost, and the deans, and then the faculties involved all have to agree this is really what we're doing and honor that commitment. And that's hard at every institution. There's nothing special about MIT in that regard. But I think MIT has a sort of ingrown limits. We have a faculty that's pretty much a set size. It hasn't changed much. It's gotten a little larger in the almost 20 years I've been there, but not much. And we're really an entrepreneurial university on the engineering and science side. You see this explicitly. Build the enterprise by raising research money and building labs and centers to execute that. So I don't see us as outgrowing our ability to talk to each other, if that was what your question is. And what we have found, and I think what's really, to me, very pleasing, is that the scientists and engineers are much more positive about the humanities at MIT than you might think. We say something, and it's really actually true, that engineers that can't write work for those who can. And our faculty colleagues feel that very strongly. They've, at different points in, the, in, in my program's history, they've come to the defense of writing as something that's really important for MIT to devote noticeable, significant resources to. And I think that's true. One of the things that, that frustrates me a great deal in the national conversation about the liberal arts and the humanities in particular is there is both a sort of aspirational argument that the humanities make you better people, learning through literature to emphasize with people you'll never meet, learning critical reasoning through understanding history and diving into sources and understanding how people have approached problems differently in different places and at different times. All those kinds of things, I believe those strongly to be true. But it's also true that just as a matter, there's a pragmatic empirical demonstration. People say, well, you got to learn how to code and learning how to code is more important than learning history. Well, I think we're not that many years before a great deal of the kind of coding you learn as an entry-level coder is going to be done by the very soon-to-accumulate follow-ons to ChatGPT and artificial intelligence models like that. Whereas the ability to think critically about what you want to code for, what you want to build, 
how you want to address a certain problem. Those are kinds of things that are harder for a machine to learn, and they're hard for human beings to learn unless they're confronted with it directly, and that's what the humanities and social sciences do in ways that's simply problem-solving to the most immediate job opening that you see will not. You know, we could have trained lots and lots of people to be shade tree mechanics in the 1970s and 80s, really work, figure out how to work on a V8. The problem now is that cars are much more complicated. All those skills are no longer useful or much less useful. They're not without use, but they're much less useful than they were 30 years ago. So if you try to train to the present, what you're doing is you're making sure that the future is going to catch you by surprise. And one of the things that the humanities do is they teach you to think about the future in ways that are more flexible, more interesting, more, dare I say it, useful, pragmatically, simply useful. And so I think MIT's faculty across the board, I mean, obviously it's a thousand, over a thousand people who are professors, there are 10,000 people in the MIT community. Not all of them are going to agree with me, but I think it's clear just from the decisions that have been taken over the last decades that a substantial preponderance of them do. And I think that's one of the strengths of MIT as an institution. Well, Tom, thank you so much. Fascinating. The book is called Money for Nothing, and it's all about, well, it's about South Sea Bubble, but it's also about the ferment associated with this early 18th century London Thanks again for joining me. Hopefully we'll chat again soon. I love that. Thank you. This is, it has been a great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.